Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Looking back's not the same as looking forward. You can't see what it is you're heading toward. All that's visible is what's left behind. Dreams distilled and the dreams discarded What made you leap or left you empty-hearted In the moment and in the fullness of time Now you see what it is that you would have changed If only you'd known Where you'd be and to be here is very strange Waking up We have, I think it's fair to say, a pretty ambivalent relationship with the Middle Ages. On the one hand, I think it resides in our mind as a place where, as a time where, nobody really knew anything. And people spent a lot of time bashing one another with clubs and swords and dying from the plague, which which is accurate, by the way, uh, and making armed and dangerous uh, pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Um, and I mean, there's even now a trope in our language. I'm going to go medieval on you, you know, which means I'm going to hurt you in some fairly violent and primitive way, which I think, once again, sort of relies on that latent notion that it was a violent and cruel time. But there's also so when I say we have, we're ambivalent, OK, that's one set of images. The other set of images, I think, is this almost dominant aesthetic uh, in our culture these days. People watch movies like The Green Knight and The Last, I guess nobody watched The Last Duel. I watched The Last Duel, you know, or, I mean, even Game of Thrones, which is, you know, highly um, based on, or not not based on, but it relies heavily uh, for its bones uh, on The War of the Roses, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings. I mean, it all kind of has that look that we like so much. I just watched The Northman last week, which is Robert Eggers' highly eccentric attempt to recreate, physically recreate um, Viking life some, sometime around the 10th century. So so we love this stuff. We disdain this stuff. Uh, we're going to sort of stick some forks uh, into those questions uh, today. And we're to start us off for the first two segments we will have with us. Jenny Adams, an associate professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her current book project is tentatively titled Degrees of Collateral, Books, Borrowing, and the Business of Medieval o- Oxford. We're going to talk, about the way, by the way, about how student debt actually is one of the many things that the Middle Ages has bequeathed to us. Uh, perhaps unwelcomely today. Uh, and then also with us, Courtney Barajas, a former assistant professor of English and the director of the Medieval and Early Modern Studies program at Whitworth University. Uh, she is also the author of Old English Ecotheology, the Exeter book. Uh, and we're going to talk at the end to somebody who's been on our show before, Martha Bayless, because when she was on the show before, she kind of teased this idea about poop jokes in, in the Middle Ages and, and just 
fecal behavior generally, and we're suckers for that. So uh, that'll be our final segment today. We'll have a, we'll have a lot to say about all that. So uh, I, I want to begin maybe just by talking about that weird dualism. And, and Jenny Adams, you know, where do we get that image of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages? Nobody knew anything. Uh, people were, you know, really kind of violent and not much else going on. Sure, Colin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for inviting these other folks to join me. They're great experts on this field. So I'm really humbled to be to be with them. Um, where do we get that? Uh, well, I think we can thank the quote unquote renaissance. I always like to say quote unquote, so I don't know what it was rebirthing. Um, <laughs> that really named the period before it the Middle Ages. And they saw it as the Middle Ages between the classical world, which they saw as enlightened and wonderful, and their kind of own time. It was a, it was a very self-modeled uh, time, uh, the Renaissance. And so they had to have something against which to define themselves. And it was the Middle Ages, medium evum, um, medieval Middle Ages, uh, the Middle Age. Uh, and so they are the ones who kind of started the idea of the Middle Ages. Is I always like to think of us as the backboard against which the ball of history is balanced, um, <laughs> giving structure to that age and then to the rest. So, yeah, I think we can we can lay it to the feet of uh, of well, Shakespeare and his ilk. Well, the, I mean, obviously, we're talking about this huge expanse of time, 500 to 1500, you know, give or take. Uh, so it's almost kind of ridiculous to suggest that it can be looked at uh, as one thing. But we do tend to do that. Although doing a little bit of the reading for the show today, I was noticing that some people within the middle and late Middle Ages we're kind of throwing shade in that way on the early yeah. Middle Ages. And you've got Petrarch, you've got Caesar Baronius. They're they're kind of saying, you know, they're looking at that sort of post-Roman early Middle Ages period and going, meh, they were a bunch of barbarians. Yeah, I mean, I think as uh, as the world started to kind of form around empires again, uh, you get you get some of that going on. You have what they call the 12th century renaissance. So there's always has to be a renaissance somewhere uh, where you get a bunch of kind of technical breakthroughs or scientific breakthroughs. And so again, it's a moment where people regroup and look to the era right before their own or a little bit before their own uh, and, and have that same moment. But yeah, you're right, it's a huge lump of time. Um, and again, I think for, you know, for the Renaissance, which is this early moment of colonization, we get the, the true beginnings of the rise of, you know, Western empires, English empires in particular, and then you get the fall of Rome. They're looking at it as this inter-empire moment, and that's a huge expanse of time, 500 to about 1500. Um, it's a long stretch. So on the other hand, uh, Courtney Barajas, there is this kind of almost sense of nostalgia. It's there in some of those pop culture aesthetics that I was talking about. But you, you kind of hear that from people. And, for example, there was a trope going around for a while that people didn't have to work that hard in the Middle Ages. They worked 150 days, which was actually based on the work of a particular scholar who has since, the, since that time rethought his analysis. But there is this kind of sense, oh, it was probably pretty nice. You know, you didn't have to, like, look at Twitter all the time. It was a better time. <laughs> Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, so I think that that uh, this question of how many days people worked is a really interesting one because the medieval sense of um, those off days, right, is very different than our own. So um, the days that a 
sort of typical medieval person would not be working would be um, church days, right? So if you think spending eight hours in church sounds like um, a relaxing time, then maybe being a medieval person would have been a good time for you. Um, I teach a class on medieval female mystics, um, and I had my students um, sort of start their morning with the practice that a medieval nun might start her morning with. Um, and they hated it because it's a <laughs> lot of work. Um, and so I think our sense of sort of leisure and our sense of free time is very different than um, is, is so sort of far beyond what any medieval person really could have imagined um, beyond sort of the, the most elite level. So most of that nostalgia, I think, comes from an understanding of the medieval world, uh, which is romanticized and which is really focused around the elites. Um, we'd all love to be princesses, but most people weren't. Right. Although since you've now just revealed that you teach that course, I think <laughs> another thing that's kind of fascinating about all this is that, uh, I mean, first of all, I, from what I can tell, medieval studies is constantly kind of in upheaval as new things are understood or new stories are brought forward. So, yeah, I mean, everybody knew about Hildegard of Bingen, Bingen forever, you know, but really some of the stories of interesting women, notable women from the Middle Ages are, are coming forward. Uh, I mean, if we look over to the Outremer, as they call the Holy Land, there's a book out by Catherine Pangonis uh, a couple of years ago about these amazing female leaders in Jerusalem and in Damascus uh, and, and in Middle Europe, right? You've got these, you know, pretty interesting figures. I, I, you teach the course. I'm sure you could rattle a few of them off. Yeah, I mean, the, so it's, I love how you said it feels like all of this is sort of coming to light, right? And I think that that work has always been there, right? And so sort of going back to this question of where the idea of the dark ages comes from, um, it a lot of it comes from the fact that people, folks in, you know, the quote unquote Renaissance um, couldn't read a lot of the medieval texts, right? Um, and so we in the West are just now sort of getting access to translations of a lot of these texts or uncovering some of these texts. So you say everyone knows Hildegard of Bingen, um, but I teach at a small school in the Pacific Northwest and a lot of my students didn't. And so um, a lot of the joy of this work comes from sort of sharing that with people um, and, and as we get sort of more scholars doing this work and doing it in, in different languages and in different areas, as you said, um, we're going to get even more of that. Right. I guess I I think Emma Kirkby put out like a recording of uh, Hildegard. I think that's when I first heard of Hildegard Bingham, maybe back in the 80s. Uh, because the singer, oh, that's awesome. The singer Emma Kirkby was interpreting her work, uh, Hildegard being kind of a polymath. And we're going to talk about polymaths, too. But this is an interesting part of all this, too, uh, Jenny Adams. What Courtney was saying, too, about sort of, you know, how you begin your day and stuff like that. This was a time in which religion – I mean, first of all, we should talk about some of the strides in knowledge that were made during that time. Uh, it wasn't uh, this time of blank ignorance. But there was a way in which um, religion uh, and and science uh, and to a certain degree things like magic and alchemy were all kind of wrapped up together. They weren't regarded as kind of sort of separate spheres that were inimical to one another that would be constantly butting heads. There was this, I mean, if you were at Oxford at the time of William of Ockham, you know, uh, and Robert Grosstest and, and Roger Bacon, you were 
a religious person. You were probably celibate and doing a lot of praying every morning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And first of all, impressive amount of reading you've done there, Colin. <laughs> you've rattled off the greats from the uh, from Oxford era. Well, can I, say, um, can I say one thing about that? One of the reasons yeah. for that, we did a whole show about the history of the index. Uh, wow. And Gro- Gross Test does maybe the first, one of the first indexes ever. Uh, we also did an entire show about Occam's Razor. So we, we, uh, we, we knew a fair amount about William of Occam. And we're, we're getting a show right now about Dunbar's number. This is this notion that uh, people are capable of about 150 significant relationships. Uh, and Dunbar relied on the size of medieval villages uh, as part of his calculation. It's just like it's always everywhere, right? It is always everywhere. And Gross Test, actually, we can go back to him in a minute if we want to talk sure. about student loans, because he was the one who started the first student loan chest. So, um, but I want to go back to this kind of unity of science and yeah. religion, because it's, it is really interesting to think about it. I'm not a religious person myself, but I've constantly amazed at medieval medieval religiosity and the, and how philosophical it is. I mean, that it is entirely philosophical. We get, you know, people like Nicholas Husa, who was a mathematician who sits there wondering about the Eucharist, wondering about, you know, at what moment does the Eucharist become the body of Christ? And so uh, he'll sit there and he uses these mathematical formulas and he starts working on it and he starts developing asymptotic relationships based on this. So he's not, he's not just thinking about numbers and he's not just thinking about faith, but he's thinking about how to approach faith or the mysticism of religion through a kind of, you know, rational thought. And um, that's not, that, that is kind of the middle ages, I would say that, you know, extreme interest in trying to sort stuff out. It was, you know, it's a scientific method. We tend to think of the medievals as just accepting things carte blanche. They, they didn't, they, they tested things. Um, they tried things out. Um, it, it was not an age of just, you know, acceptance of everything. And, and another thing that's happening, too, is, I mean, we think about the Crusades almost entirely militarily. Uh, but another thing that's happening, I mean, the, the Islamic world, I think it's fair to say, is ahead uh, of Western Europe and, and England during this period in areas like mathematics, natural philosophy, yeah, science, stuff like that. And yeah. so it's it's all feeding, but some of that is feeding back to places like Oxford. Whoever just said absolutely should elaborate on that. Both of us did, but Courtney should go ahead. Okay, yeah. No, I just, I mean, so this is definitely a time where um, there's there's tons of cultural exchange, right? So we have people, um, you know, from Scandinavia interacting in in the East, right? Um, we have all sorts of exchange here. So so first of all, the idea that like these are totally separate spaces or separate timelines is is a fallacy, sort of to begin with. Um, and then sort of in general, I do think that there are certain parts of Europe. So I don't know, I, I, I'm going to contradict myself here a little bit. Um, my, the thesis of my book is that environmental questions and environmental anxiety have been around a lot longer than we think they have. So I don't want to sort of paint medieval Europe with a brush and like say they were ignorant, right? That's not what we're doing here. Um, but it is true that like um, in the Islamic world, math and um, specifically like anatomy and surgery, things like this were were more advanced 
um, generally than they were in, in other parts of Europe. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard. It's so hard to generalize about things like this. Um, I get anxious even doing it because I know my <laughs> students are listening to this and they're oh, no. like, why are you generalizing? <laughs> um, but yeah, Jenny. Oh, I was just going to add to that. Um, I think there was a, a pretty big flow of information across pretty large stretches of land that we tend to, it's a little surprising when we think about it. There was a good scholar from the 70s or 80s who wrote a book called The European World System. And it, she talks about how, yeah, there is this kind of general, more, this bigger flow of information and knowledge going all over and goods too, from Northern Africa, we tend to forget about the Mali empire. Um, and it was a, it was a moment because there wasn't this kind of dominant world, you know, kind of not like the Roman empire, not later like the English empire, a kind of freer flow, I think of information that Europe benefited from, right? Getting all of this stuff in from, you know, other areas because they were, I don't want to say behind, but they were lacking certain technologies that that um, they, they got through other places. Right. I mean, Jerusalem early on becomes this very international place where people from Iceland are there and people from India are, are there. And then the other sense that I got was that there were these, from the Muslim world, there were these kind of, for want of a better word, they were like travel writers who were traveling into medieval Europe or, or you know, Tocquevillian kinds of writers who actually have provided us with some of the knowledge that we have about medieval Europe and about, you know, about that whole time period. Yeah, absolutely. And you get that early on. You get, you get first of all, the horrified, you know, Greeks and the um, Easterners coming in saying, you know, these barbaric Europeans, they never take baths thinking of Tacitus <laughs> writing about the Anglo-Saxons. And then <clears throat> later on, you get more stories of Europe coming in about practices and this kind of bewilderment at European, European life. And uh, the flip side is that you get European travelers going in and uh, you know, Marco Polo being a classic, m- making up stuff to be sure, but, you know, kind of coming back with, ideas like, oh, stored value and, you know, in cash, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> here's, here's how, here's how cash systems work. <laughs> Banking works in, in the Far East and we should think about this. So it's, there's a lot of exchange going on. All right. So um, that leads to something else I want to talk about, but um, I also don't want to get in tr- trouble with Lily of Tyson, who is uh, producing this show. Uh, so we're going to go to a break right now. We'll come back with these two terrific guests. We have so much more to explore. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. 
You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Here's your Hildegard of Bingen. That that was number one with an arrow on the uh, Hot 100 charts of the Middle Ages. So joining us right now, uh, Jenny Adams, Associate Professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her current book project, tentatively titled Degrees of Collateral, Books Borrowing, and the Business of Medieval Oxford. We are going to tell you what Oxford and what this whole topic and this whole time period has to do with the student loans you're currently struggling to pay off. Uh, Courtney Barajas uh, is a former Assistant Professor of English and the Director of the Medieval and Early Modern Studies Program at Whitworth University also the author of Old English Eco-Theology, the Exeter book. Maybe let's begin with uh, by talking about technology. And, and Jenny Adams, there's kind of a, an interesting paradox here in the sense that I think we have this sort of longing uh, for the Middle Ages as a time when we weren't so burdened with a lot of the technology that we feel afflicts us today. Uh, we, can ex- we can sort of play around with that idea for a second. But there's an irony there, too, because the way that I understand it, one of the reasons your field changes as much as it does is because of technology, that things like stable isotope analysis uh, now allows us to figure out what, you know, Ina of Wessex was eating in 725 AD. Uh, technology is sort of your friend as a medievalist. Oh, yeah. And that's been, that's been, I think, one of the most amazing things from the last decade of medieval studies is seeing the things that people have been doing. I know like Robin Fleming has looked at isotopes and strontium isotopes and teeth to look at migration patterns in, you know, 8th century England. Michael McCormick at Harvard's done tree ring analysis to look at ice ages. Um, he's also looked at DNA in vellum to find out where people sourced their parchment, uh, where, where they got their parchment for herd, from, from different herds. Uh, so I think that has been um, the blend of science and medieval studies has been revolutionary, I would say, in the past decade. It's really helped answer some fundamental questions uh, about, well, about technology, medieval technologies, modern technologies have helped with medieval technologies um, incredibly. Right. And I think, Courtney, for some people, um, medieval technology sounds like a contradiction in terms, like what technologies, <laughs> but but that's not quite right. Yeah. I mean, so again, like just like us, medieval folks were sort of fascinated by their own technology. Um, So one of the riddles that I write about in my book um, is a riddle that describes the process of of making a book, um, going from sort of this living animal to a skin, which has been stretched and dried and scraped and folded, um, and then sort of the mechanics of the ink moving from the quill to sort of sinking into that parchment um, and then sort of being gilded, right? And the cover being folded. Um, And what's being described is is really a piece of of technology, right? Like this new um, well-protected book, probably a Bible. um, 
and and the great thing about this poem is that um you know, if you've ever had the experience of reading like a sci-fi book on a Kindle, um, it feels a little dystopian. <laughs> um, for the medieval people who are potentially like holding this manuscript, they're reading about um, the process of this transformation from an animal to a book, right? To that piece of technology that they're holding in their hands. Um, so, you know, they're as fascinated by sort of their cutting edge technology um, as as we are by ours. Yeah, and, and I mean, McLuhan says every new piece of communication technology uh, occasions anxiety. And what you're yeah. describing occasioned anxiety. I people have heard me tell this story before, but the Abbot of Sponheim, when Johannes Trithemius wrote a treatise, basically saying this movable type stuff is going to get us in a lot of trouble. People aren't going to memorize stuff anymore. Scribes are really the only people, you know, who who should be working with this material anyway because they're they tend to be you know relig- religious orders people. Uh, society is going to go to a hell in the handbasket. Uh, if we start publishing things this way. And then he published the treatise, which was, I think, maybe, you know, kind of undercutting his own point a little bit. But he wanted to make sure a lot of people read it. But so let's kind of explore a little bit about what you wrote about specifically, because once again, I think notions of climate, eco-theology, once again, I don't think that's a lot of people's mental picture of this time. I think it's more Monty Python. People are kind of rooting around in filth for no particular reason. <laughs> yeah, so um like us, um the people in early medieval Europe experienced um climate change. There were a lot of different circumstances that led to it, but we have um this great record called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um which is exactly what it sounds like, a chronicle of of this time period. Um and uh, so we have this record of things like storms, crop failures, um, like mass livestock death, um, things that we can probably attribute to some sort of environmental crisis. Um, and at the same time, we have these theologians. Um, one of my favorites is, or my two favorites are Wolfstan and, and Alfrich. Um, and, and they're explicitly tying this environmental change to human sin. Um, so Wolfson says this earth was clean at its first creation, but we've befouled it with our sins. Um, and so again, like us, they are looking at environmental change um, and they're acknowledging it as something that is their responsibility, right? Something that they've caused and therefore something that they have to change. Um, their solutions are very different than ours, um, but they're asking a lot of the same questions. So uh, I want to make sure we get to uh, all of the specialties or as many of the specialties represented here on the show uh, as possible. So, Jenny, let's make sure we we get to this whole question of student loans. Uh, I think a lot of people are thinking, really, student loans, middle ages? I I don't get it. Well, first of all, I just want to pick up where Courtney left off and say, you know, um, there's a lot of stuff that's really has echo. We hear echoes of ourselves in it. And before I get to the loans, I just want to say student life. There's a way we can look at the Middle Ages and say, okay, students were very different in college then. They were all male. They were all celibate. They're all supposed to be priests. But I have this little excerpt from a letter that uh, a student wrote home. And tell me if it sounds familiar, Colin. Here's the student writing to his parents in the 13th century. Quote, 
quote, I am studying at Oxford with the greatest diligence, but the matter of money stands greatly in the way of my promotion. <laughs> it is now two months since I spent the last of what you sent me. The city is expensive and makes many demands. I have to rent lodgings, buy necessities, and provide for many other things, which I cannot now specify. Please send more, end quote. <laughs> so, so there's one way to look at the Middle Ages is very different. And there's another to say, okay, well, students have always run out of money. And Absolutely. Hey, I, hey I, just while we're on this, um, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong about this. My, you, you were saying all male. My sense is that that's certainly true in in England and and maybe you know other parts of Western Europe. But if you go into Italy and Spain, I think you start to see some women who do emerge as scholars. There's an Alessandra Giuliani I read about today that there were some universities where w- women were studying, just maybe not 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 over you know by the ocean. Yeah, not over by the ocean. It was pretty restricted. Um, I didn't say, I shouldn't say women didn't learn. I mean, women were literate, they were writing, they were poets. Christine de Pizan was a famous French poet. Um, But uh, a lot of them weren't university trained. Um, Yeah, and they they often, I'm sorry to interrupt, they they just would have to make space for themselves, right? So Mm. like convents and, and other sort of religious spaces often became um, I think like sanctuaries for women who wanted to learn and and who could read and write. All right, so let's let's switch over to student debt now. We now know that yeah, you're right at home. I'm running out of money. Uh, what else was happening? So, um, so it started. The whole student loan system started actually, like I said, with gross attest, and uh, it started out of money that was already being given to the university for poor students. So. Uh, there was a crime committed against some university students, and as part of the court-ordered restitution, the court case that came down, the citizens of Oxford had to pay 52 shillings a year to the students there, to the poor students. And the chancellor of the university had to figure out which students to give it to. And this became onerous because then the chancellor had to figure that out. So Grossetest, who was the bishop who oversaw that diocese, decided, well, you know what, I'm going to take this money that comes in every year and I'm going to stick it in this loan chest. And then if a student needs it, he can borrow it. And what he'll have to do though, is have to come bring some sort of security. Hmm. What do, what do students have? I'll go back to Courtney's example. What do students have? Well, they have books actually, that's their technology and they can come and bring a book and hand it over and borrow against the book. And they have a year, usually a year and a month to return it. And if they return it, they can get their book back. And if they do not return it, the chest keeps the book, resells it, and the money goes back in the chest. So this starts the first system of lending uh, in the Middle Ages, specifically for students. No one else could use this chest except for the scholars at Oxford. I should say that it was designed for poorer students, but quickly the system expanded and became for kind of more advanced students and colleges themselves would borrow against these chests. So it became more of an, I would say called an academic lending system, but absolutely that first chest was pitched at students who needed money. So one area I wanted to get into with you is this t- peculiar nostalgia that we're seeing now. And some of it is in a very unappetizing way coming from the world of white supremacists who see this time, I think, as simpler and men were men and women had 14 children and you didn't have to uh, be polytheistic or tolerant at all of uh, of other religions. Uh, and, and Courtney, this feels, I mean, you know, based on the conversation we just had about this 
surprisingly heterogeneous world in some ways. Uh, this seems inappropriate and weird and not necessarily based on a ton of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it's just simply not true that there was ever a time in medieval Europe um, where everybody was white and, and Christian. It's just, it's not true. Um, there are, then as now, there were certainly um, people who wanted it to be that way. Um, but it was a diverse world, right? Um, I, I think what Jenny said about um, sort of freedom of movement um, because of the lack of empire is is really true. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's just, it's a diverse time. So, I mean, I work specifically on medieval England, right? And even in medieval England, we know that there were, um, you know, people of African descent who were not only sort of living and working in England, but also in positions of power within the church. Um, so uh, the it, it's, it's just simply um, untrue. Yeah. Yeah, Jenny, what, what do you make of, of this, this way in which it's been, as I say, unappetizingly embraced by a certain philosophical segment? Yeah, I... Colin, it's hard. It's hard to watch. It's a period I've studied for a long time, and <clears throat> I'm used to it, I think, being reread and reinterpreted to different ends, but I, I guess it's, to me, I, dismaying uh, the, the massive amount of contortion that has to be made to the sources to press it into the service of white supremacy. I mean, it is such I mean, we always are constructing history out of our own present. We can't help it, right? We are in the present. But the amount of work you have to do to force the records to fit any sort of white supremacist argument is, um, it's, it's mind boggling. So I, yeah, I, it, it's, it's not, I guess it's not that mysterious to me because I think for the very reasons you open the show with the, the, the idea that we're fascinated by this time period, of course, people are going to want to take it and press it into service to ends that are horrific and um, and racist and awful. You know, Courtney, the other way in which I, I feel like this conversation we're having right now is very modern and on point is we're still in the throes of a pandemic, uh, but the pandemic we're experiencing is in some ways kind of small potatoes compared to what we saw in the Middle Ages. We saw a plague that by some estimates, I think wiped wiped out about a third of the population from India all the way through Europe. Uh, and so you're you're either living through the plague or you're writing and thinking and working in the shadow of the plague. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, one of the one of the rare joys of teaching in the last couple of years has been um, being able to share sort of that that firsthand experience um, with my students. So, and this is a little outside of my time zone, but we read Journal of the Plague Year um, by Defoe. Um, and, and that was really great. Um, you know, again, I, I think the thing I always say about the Middle Ages, um, it's actually about the modern world is we think we're modern, but we're not, right? And we think the Middle Ages um, is medieval, but it isn't. Um, and, and, anxieties about all of these sorts of things um, are, are really prevalent right then as now. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that idea that we think we're modern, but we're not. And, but we think, and we think the Middle Ages is primitive in, in a way that it was not. 
Um, and, and maybe, yeah, Jenny, I, I don't know. Is there? I have a question, but I'd almost rather just say to you, is there something we haven't covered here? We're going to have to go to a break pretty soon that you really wanted to make sure you said on this show? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> ask your question. I have so many things. There's so many things that I'm sure all of us would say about the Middle Ages. Well, another thing that we're we're working on another episode, future episode right now on polymaths, uh, and that gets us back to people like uh, Grossetest uh, and and Roger Bacon and stuff like that too. That idea really of you know we live in an era where specialization is kind of a necessity, um, but there's sort of a very something very exciting about an era where you could kind of try to know everything, and that wasn't a ridiculous project. Yeah, I mean, the idea of thinking across fields, well, I'm now, now you need another show on David Epstein's book, Range, <laughs> which I think is getting us back to that, the idea that we've over-specialized, that we are at, we're in an era of over-specialization, and there's something to be said for allowing your mind to kind of float freely across different fields, and that that's how discoveries are made. Um, and I think in the middle ages, that's definitely true. You get these great thinkers, um, and, and by great thinkers, I know that, you know, again, the projection is always white men, mm -hmm. but no, you get a lot of great thinkers of all different persuasions and, and um, backgrounds, uh, coming up with things, uh, and developments and discoveries. And I think a lot of that is this kind of unfettered range across different fields, books themselves being collections of different of a variety of different things um, in one under between two covers. All right. I wanted to end this segment on a high-minded note because we're about to plunge into the world of latrines and poop jokes in our final segment. Uh, so thanks very much to both of these wonderful guests. We're going to take a quick break and we will come back. All right, we're back. Thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer, making everything hum here on the show, uh, and to Lily Tyson, who is our senior producer uh, and the producer of this particular episode. She was also the producer of an episode about unicorns quite some time ago. Uh, and at that time, we met Martha Bayless, uh, the director of folklore and public culture and a professor of English at the University of Oregon. Uh, her books include Sin and Filth in, the Middle in Medieval Culture, the Devil in the Latrine, uh, and A Cultural History of Comedy in the Middle Ages. And we thought, oh, I said at the time, well, you just have to come back. Uh, we probably just should devote a whole 49 minutes to the work of Martha Bayless, given our own predilections here. But she's back. We're excited about that. So welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm thrilled that when people think of poop, they think of me. <laughs> and so much more, though. I mean, it's just not that. Um, but we might as well start there. Well, I think we should start with comedy, with humor. Uh, once again, this is maybe part of the Middle Ages that people don't think about too much. And, and we should say, it's not just poop jokes and we're going to come to that. Uh, but it also is poop jokes, right? You literally had the experience of hearing a modern poop joke and having read it in a manuscript within a fairly short time period. That's right. When people say it's an old joke, they they it's truer than they think. Some of these jokes are easily 800 years old. 
And I'm wondering also why that would be. Uh, and one thing that – this is just totally my idea as opposed to anything based on knowledge or scholarship. But it occurred to me that sort of in the post-Roman era, an awful lot of the translation would have been done by you know, by monks or you know whatever kind of scribe was working on that material. So you'd be translating Petronius. You'd be translating Plautus. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe some of the jokes uh, which are getting passed along in these – in the margins of these manuscripts that you're looking at at might be coming from even earlier sources. I mean, it's possible. I think the, the thing is that most classical literature is very formal literature. You know, it's like a, an ode or, you know, something big rather than just a little anecdote that people tell on the street and sort of go har-har and nudge each other or something. And so when you get those starting to be written down, you know, suddenly there's a profusion of them and they've probably been going for hundreds of years but they weren't written down earlier so we just don't know how old they are they could be you know 3,000 years old for all we know but um, in the late middle ages when you get a lot of people suddenly being able to write and uh, being able to own manuscripts one of the things they want to write down is you know the the rude jokes and so suddenly there's a ton of them and and also um, the other thing that's happening is well, first of all, I mean, for a while, most of the centers of writing, transcription, scholarship, everything are religious places. And religious places uh, where, in fact, members of religious orders are doing a lot of the scholarly work are not necessarily, as you've discovered, humorless places. That's right. They love religious jokes. The The difference between religious places and, and non-religious people is not that the the religious people aren't, you know, full of jokes. It's just that they're more religious jokes. And I mean, that continues into the modern age. If you've ever talked to like a group of monks, they know all the religious jokes, you know, and they're, they're very specialized religious jokes as they are sometimes in the middle ages where they start out, you know, there was a Franciscan, a Cistercian and a, you know, <laughs> and, and so they play on all these stereotypes that, aren't uh, so potent for, you know, non-monastic people, but they're, they're pretty hilarious once you, you know, once you know the inside story. You know, this actually advances well beyond even the Christian world. I spent some time with Tibetan monks and particularly with a guy who was kind of, uh, I don't know, an interpreter of them to the Western world. And he said, first of all, they tell a lot of jokes. And he said, the other thing is they love Kung Fu movies. They will watch Kung Fu movies all night long, which I thought was kind of hilarious. But yeah, we think about these these things as being kind of monocultures that are characterized by purity. But I think, that's, I think purity is probably a pretty rare asset. Um, so we should also talk about poop itself in the Middle Ages. I was a few years ago in a German town called St. Gore, and you take a tour of the castle there, and they tell you basically that the nobility would literally poop out the windows. Uh, there was a, sort of like a board slung underneath uh, wind, the wind, the upper window sills uh, that you know, they'd stick their butts out there and poop, and occasionally it would land on soldiers being marshaled in the in the courtyard, uh, and and you might get like a little packet of silver uh, a day later if you were one of the unfortunate soldiers upon whom some nobles poop had landed. But it sounds like it was a little bit harder to get away from poop uh, at this time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not that easy now to get away from it. You know, if you have kids, <laughs> yes. you, you you know how much there is of it in the world, you know. Um, it certainly, it was ever present. And there were a lot of ingenious ways to um, created to deal with it, like, you know, sticking your butt out the window is is certainly, it's a way 
that the pooper doesn't have to deal with it anymore. I guess the people below have to deal with it. But there were lots of people rigging up all kinds of uh, systems where rainwater would come down and flush their latrine, or they would have a a nearby stream and they would divert a stream of water uh, through the latrine. Or even in Winchester in England, there was a, a row of houses that had diverted water so that the little stream went through the front room of the houses. So you just have a stream going through. Um, The trouble is that the people early in the stream were kept washing their baby diapers in the water and the people later in the stream were complaining because, you know, the water was no longer pure. So they weren't all perfect systems, but, you know, uh, they, they actually did a lot of ingenious things to, to try to, Uh, you know, ameliorate the problem. The other thing was, you know, there was more countryside than there is now. And so lots of people just, they didn't bother with little buildings or with chamber pots or something. They just went out in the field, you know, and I I think that would be fine in the summer. In the winter, it was probably pretty unpleasant. In fact, Charlemagne himself, the great, uh, you know, French emperor, um, complained that it was cold in the winter and his cloak didn't didn't cover his behind when he went out to uh, to do the necessities of nature. So, you know, even if you were a king, you might be dissatisfied with the arrangements, but they, they kept trying to solve the problem. So, I mean, that kind of omnipresence would suggest a level of comfort, which uh, with this whole process and with the material that, that is the end product, so to speak, uh, of this process. But as the subtitle of one of your books suggests, that notion of poop and sinfulness was also brewing at this time. Right. It also had meaning to them in a way that it doesn't to us. Uh, I think uh, if you're a medieval Christian, a lot of the world had meaning in ways that we think is, uh, you know, irrelevant. And so they thought, you know, the like, why do we poop? What is the problem here? Why do we have to endure this? And, and you know, I mean, that's a good question. I guess now we think, well, processes of digestion and all that stuff. But their answer was, Uh, In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, it was eating the apple, right? And what's the result of eating the apple? What's the result of sin is that there's this nasty thing that happens to your body that you have to deal with. And so it is literally an emblem of sin. That's why we all have to do it because of original sin. And before then, um, apparently, you know, the, the philosopher said people excreted, but it was just a sort of clear and lovely substance and it wasn't nasty the way it is. And so in heaven, there, there won't be it. And people even raised the question, which was very shocking to uh, people afterwards, and even now, it's shocking to them of whether Jesus pooped, right? And I mean, uh, I, I've noticed that when I raise this to theologians, um, the modern theologians are unhappy at the question, but it's not the first time they've heard it. And I mean, the answer is not really. You know, that Jesus is too pure to to have to deal with this. But they saw it as a sort of necessity of you know the fall of mankind. And so it had more meaning in that way, but also it meant it was more despicable. You know, it was a part of you that you you really didn't want to have to deal with because it was the sinful part of you. So um, it gave it a place in the great scheme of things instead of just being a, a sort of product to get rid of. Right. Much more of a running start towards Freud and Norman O'Brown uh, than, than we would have guessed. Or maybe they just, you know. <laughs> running start yeah <laughs> right yeah, yeah they people who've tried to give it meaning again 
um, I, I do think people are trying to think with like, oh, we want to be these pure disembodied spirits. And yet we have to deal with all this bathroom stuff. Like, well, what can we do to think our way out of this problem? And so they, that problem has continually occurred to people. Right. And I, like, I don't want to reduce you to this topic. We'll have you back to talk about bread and games and all the other things that you know a lot about. But I just having come this far, Martha, I have to ask about medieval toilet paper. I assume there probably was no such thing. Oh, well, I mean, obviously they use something, you know, because uh, otherwise that would have been very nasty. Um, and we do know what they, they used uh, hay, little bits of hay and leaves. There's a medieval riddle. What's the cleanest leaf in the land? And the answer is holly because nobody doth wipe his arse with it, you know, because it's prickly. So uh, anything like that, um, especially leaves and, and hay. I, I don't know how well hay would have worked. But the great thing is that when you put hay in with um, with dung, it you know it decomposes and it it helps take away the smell. So it's sort of a uh, you know ecologically sound way to do it. All right, so we've got about a minute and a half left, and I want to steer you away from poop and just sort of ask you something that I was talking about with the previous two guests, which is what what about this period invites your interest? Why you know why do you keep turning back to this period and, and investing time and scholarship into it? What's the attraction? Well, for me, it's two separate things. One is how much they were like us, which is you know amazingly much, and one is how different they were from us, which is also amazingly much. <laughs> do I don't know you want do you want to, you've got you know 45 seconds to elaborate on those two points well like they were different from us they they dyed their pets to match their clothes sometimes you know it just opens up possibilities of human behavior where you think oh <laughs> uh, yeah that would be interesting but then you know sometimes they say things that are so familiar you just have to laugh like the same old jokes for 800 years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure Margaret of Anjou was one of the people who dyed her pets to match her clothes. It's a very Circe Lannister kind of thing to do. Martha Bayless is the director of folklore and public culture uh, and a professor of English at the University of Oregon. Uh, her books include Sin and Filth in Medieval Culture, The Devil in the Latrine, and A Cultural History of Comedy in the Middle Ages. Thanks to everyone who listened today. Have a very very medieval day, but don't go medieval on each other. <laughs>